As Pastor Stewart knows, it's always a pleasure to get in the pulpit with the choir behind you like that. It was a special treat to witness the baptism, Tracy. Tracy, Jason's mother, Tracy Abbott, Bellevue, um, just a youngster when we came here, as were some of you. My kids are here today. Carrie was four. Kevin was about 15 months. Carrie has presented us with three wonderful grandchildren. Kevin, he hasn't been forthcoming with any grandchildren yet, but that's a good thing. He just got married in August, so we're, we're grateful for that. But time passes, as they say, when you're having fun. And it was fun to be at Spencerville on Sabbath morning. People said, well, do you miss it? Oh, it's been 20 years since I left the pulpit here. Do you miss it? I said, only on Sabbaths, you know? <laughs> There's nothing in my travels that equates, Jim, with listening to the congregation sing the hymns. And I tell people far and wide, and especially the people that opposed us putting in the slate floor. If you were here for Sabbath school, you saw, and my apologies to Rick Blondo, but you saw that chunk of burnt orange carpet that used to cover the floor from the front to the back. The original intention was to leave the carpet underneath the pews. You know, the acoustical engineer that helped us when we put in the organ, he said, to get the best out of the organ, you need, you need to thicken the glass walls. You need to put silicon caulk in the tongue and groove panels. We put in 21,000 linear feet of clear silicon caulk, four miles, could have drawn a line up the road almost to Ashton and back again with the silicon caulk. We put in the slate floor, but we discovered when we were taking the pews out and putting in the slate that during the construction phase, they hadn't sealed the slab. And moisture had leached through the concrete and had rotted the back of the carpet in many places. So the board decided we had such a good deal on the slate that we were going to use as much of it as we could and we put it under the pews as well. Well, that, that was almost the beginning of World War III. <laughs> it's one, one thing to listen to the choir sing and the acoustics of the music. It's another thing to kneel on the slate floor. And people are still waiting for an apology. <laughs> and it's not forthcoming. <laughs> One um, creative solution, Miriam Wood. You remember Miriam Wood, 
had a column. Her husband was the editor of the Adventist Review. Miriam said, well, all I do is I open my hymnal to softly and tenderly and then kneel on my hymnal. It worked. Uh, another dear saint, uh, older saint, uh, Mildred Bradley said, well, you know, I think if you just spend a little bit more time on your knees during the week, they'd be in better shape for Sabbath morning. <laughs> Those were fun days. But there's no experience like listening to this congregation sing hymns. There's seldom an experience like watching these little kids. You know, some of my fond memories. I remember Roland Hagstead calling from the thank offering one morning and referring to these precious little darlings as juvenile extortionists. <laughs> They, if you were on the end, and some of you have always sat on the end of the pews because you just love that part of the service. But if they're kind of late in the process and they don't have many dollars in their hand, they'll stand there and stare you down. <laughs> I remember one little boy coming up and staring down somebody I'm sure had already given a handful of dollars away and he got one, then he got another, then he raised his hands and said, look, mom, he gave me two. <laughs> oh, those precious memories. All those little kids now have kids in the school. That's what Spencerville is. It's about growth. It's about change. Yeah. Paul Brando. Some of you old-timers remember Paul Brando, longtime deacon. Mr. Fix-It, we called him, because anything needed to be fixed around the church, we'd let Paul know, and he'd come during the week, and he was retired, and he'd get it done. Paul told me one day, he said, you know, Pastor, we've had a succession of pastors over the last number of years, two years, two and a half years, three years, Jim Hohen, the longest tenured pastor in four years there in the mid-70s. But Paul said, you know, you know, pastor, even though some of them didn't stay very long, God sent just the person we needed at just that time in our church history. And that still continues to today. God is good. He's good to this church, and he will continue to be good to this church. Remember those early days of trying to get the um, movement towards the senior academy? I challenged Ron Wiley, there's another name, who was the chairman of the, of the board before Merle Poyer took over and did such a wonderful job. I challenged Ron in a sermon to polish off an old dream. Of course, the dream in those days is trying to get cooperation 
from three conferences. We formed what was called BWADA, the Baltimore Washington Day Academy. We didn't get a lot of cooperation. The leadership in this church said, we want a school for our young people. We want a full academy for our young people. And they became uh, dedicated to the task. I moved on, Jerry came in and gave time and energy along with you to see that dream being realized. And now it's about to be completed. Three years or less. Wonderful memories. I could keep you here till the afternoon program talking about some of those memories, but I'll, they asked me to come here to do something else, so I will. It is always, oh, I should, if you look in your bulletin, the sermon title says, write this down. Well, I want you to write something down, would you? Write down for the closing hymn, number 615, because I've changed it. And you can cross out, write this down, once you've written down 615. Rise up, O Church of God. I'll mention it again at the end in case you didn't write it down. It's always been my custom before I open God's word to preach to have a moment of silent prayer and I invite you to bow your heads with me. Now may the words of my mouth and the meditations upon each one of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Any of you have an accent? Yeah? Claude read the scripture lesson to us in that very beautiful Swiss accent. There's some Latin, Hispanic accents. Don't ask me to say from what country when I hear it because it's just like American accents. All sorts of different accents in America, well, except for those of us that were born in the Midwest. <laughs> right, we don't have accents. East Coast, the Northeast. I, I have a sister-in-law born and raised and lived and will probably die near Boston. She doesn't know how to talk. <laughs> I mean, I said a good speech therapist could probably help you. Yeah. Don't ask her if she's gonna go to the party because it doesn't come out that way. Some of you know. <laughs> I was looking for a particular commentary on the New Testament, one of the books. ABC didn't have it. I was wanting it quickly, so I didn't order it from the ABC. Um, I went to Cokesbury Bookstore in southwest Baltimore on Rolling Road. 
And I went in and I looked. They have a, they, they've always had a good collection of commentaries, but they didn't have it. So I went to the desk. Yeah, yeah I forgot that I uh, didn't have a lapel mic on. I went up to the desk to place the order. The young woman behind the counter was on the phone. And as I waited, I could tell from just half of the conversation that she was talking to a publishing company or a book salesman. And she was placing an order, and then she was asked, I'm sure, for the address of the bookstore. And so she gave it on North Rolling Road in Baltimore. And she didn't say Baltimore. She said, we're on Rolling Road in Balmer. Yeah, Balmer. I thought, where am I? So it, it was clear the fellow on the other end of the line asked her to repeat it. And she said, Balmer, B-A-L, T-I-M-O-R-E, Balmer. When she got off the line, she turned to help me, and I started telling her what I wanted to special order. And she just looked at me. You talk funny. She had been on the, on the phone with, I think it was InterVarsity Press in Chicago. And I talked just like, because I was raised, born and raised near Chicago at Hinsdale. And you talk funny. Balmer? And I talk funny? Do you have an accent? Do you? I hope so. I hope so. Does this church have an accent? It does. Don't ever deny your accent. You remember the, the story there in Matthew 26 chapter, I mean, 26 chapter, verse 73 and following. Jesus was going through the mockery of a trial. Peter had been told he would deny Christ three times. He's sitting in the outer courtyard. One of the servant girls comes up and says, aren't you one of his followers? And he says, I don't know the man. Short while later, another young servant girl comes by and says, you've got to be one of his followers. I don't know the man, he said. And then bystanders, they came, they came over and said, you have to be one of his followers. Your accent gives you away. We all have an accent. I pray to God we have a good accent. The tragedy of that text reaches far beyond the fact of mere speech. The tragedy is that many people today have lost their accent in some places, our church has lost its distinctiveness. And too often we speak and act and think like the rest of the world. Our Lord said, in many ways, we're to have an accent. As in the scripture lesson, you are the salt of the earth. 
You are the light of the world. The Apostle Paul, he said, I must see Rome. When I go to Spain, and this one thing I do, there's an accent of faith, of consecration, of determination. Again, I ask you, do you have an accent? And I pray that you do. I was preaching in a small church in Pennsylvania a few months ago. And I don't remember the individual's name, but they had some connection to Spencerville. And uh, I had mentioned Spencerville or something in the sermon, and somebody at Potluck said, uh, you were at Spencerville, right? Yes. That's a great church. And I said, what makes it great? And he just looked at me like I had two heads or something like, I just made a statement, you know, don't ask me for the particulars. But I asked, and I I poked a little bit and prodded a little bit. What makes it great? I mean, what is it that makes a church great? What are the essential marks of a great church? One thing is certain. A church, even a church like Spencerville, is not is not the result of just human effort. I should say, some of the finest people I've ever known or ever been associated with were members of this congregation. I mean, I've worked with lots of fine people in lots of fine places. But Spencerville, he was right, is a great church. One thing is certain, though, it's not by human effort alone. I mean, the choir may sing like angels, and they do. The organ may pour forth heavenly music, and it does. The preacher may have the eloquence of the angels, and he does. The sanctuary may be filled to overflowing. The wheels of organization in the church may be running ever so smoothly. The church budget may never be embarrassed. Yet the church might not be great. It's possible for a church to seemingly have everything, but yet lack the most important qualities. And that is an utter dependency upon God and a willingness to be used by him for his reconciling and redeeming purposes. Without that, no church will ever be what God intends. I think it's important in the day in which we live to understand the nature of the church. Some people think that um, it's all about numbers. But it's no cause for rejoicing if masses flock to our church but misunderstand its mission and its message. No victory has been won when multitudes come unless their lives eventually conform to the image of Christ. It's always a temptation for us as a people to judge the significance of our movement by the numbers involved in it. Now, that is not to disdain growth. I'm a union secretary. 
I worry about statistics. Well, I don't worry about them, but we keep track of statistics. But the spiritual significance of our church is never judged primarily by quantity, but by quality. And by quality, I mean commitment. We must remember that the church is God's doing. It was conceived, empowered, established, commissioned by his grace. And so think with me for a few minutes this morning. What are the essential, what is the essential nature of the church? And what is it that marks its greatness? The church is great when it is a redemptive community. For we are his workmanship, said Paul, created unto God unto good works of service that he prepared beforehand that we should walk in, Ephesians 2.10. We're God's people. The Greek term is ekklesia, which means called out ones. We're a little colony of heaven called out from the world and placed back in the world, and we're commissioned to do something. We're commissioned to reflect the love of God to a world that's torn apart by hate. I don't read blogs anymore. I mean, I read the article, I react to it as I read it, but I don't read what anybody else says because it just makes my blood boil to see the hatred and the arguments that are carried on, sometimes on the blogs of our own journals. For the churches of God, We reflect, we speak the truth of God in a world torn by falsehood. We exemplify the beauty of God's character in a world that's marred by the ugliness of sin. And we're commissioned to proclaim the willingness of God to redeem and to heal all who will call upon him. The church is of God, it's his doing. The church is made up of people who've come face to face with the claims of Christ on their lives. Having our names on the book is not sufficient. Only people who have been confronted by the claims of Christ, who have deliberately, voluntarily, understandingly crowned him Lord of their lives and committed themselves to the accomplishment of his mission. That issues in several things. I'll only mention one for the sake of time. It issues in the consciousness of living a life worthy of him. Members of a redemptive community of the church will seek to reflect purity of life and genuineness of character in all their relationships, in all their dealings, in all their actions, in all their processes. Those who have been forgiven by Christ will, out of gratitude for his redeeming love, seek to reflect his character. That has been, in every generation, the strength of the church. Validating before the court of the world, by transformation of life, the power of the gospel. The pagan world taunted the Christians because of their membership. 
The church gloried in the membership because it validated the power of the gospel to take and transform lives. Another mark of a, of a great church is that it is a caring community. By this all men will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Love is a dynamic that transforms the church from just a religious social club into an instrument to be used by God. And it will be through a demonstration of sacrificial love, a love like Christ's love, that people in these last days will be one to him. There is simply no answer to a love that seeks not its own. There is no foe that can defeat it. It's not sentiment. It does not expect to receive for what it gives. It's unconditional. It's universal. It's personal. Christian love understands how meaningful and helpful it is when a church family understands what people are going through. It becomes a haven for, for people to find courage and strength to begin again. It was in the presence of an understanding Christ that Mary Magdalene found power to be free. Where Zacchaeus was made pure and honest. Where Peter became a rock of devoted leadership and where a Samaritan woman became, became one of the church's first missionaries. They were changed because Christ understood their need, saw beyond their faults, and loved them. Where do we stand, church? Oh yes, we love and accept everybody within these walls on Sabbath morning. But how much do we care for the stranger, sometimes within our gates, for the neighbor down the street or even next door? Do we possess the same compassion as the master? I go to a lot of different churches around and some could use some help in this area. I've talked to a lot of young people who are no longer maybe fitting the definition of young people who don't go to church anymore because they just never felt they would have accepted. The church is the company of forgiven, one author said, and we must forgive. People must sense compassion and understanding within the church in order to find power to reshape their lives in Christ. This is the key to effective evangelism. It's not pressure, it's not propaganda, it's a profound love of people born out of a knowledge of their need. Because nothing is as winsome as Christian love. 
a love that seeks nothing for itself. It doesn't keep books. It just constantly seeks the well-being of others. When the church is true to its nature, and each one of us seeks persons in this spirit of love, when the church will extend its arms and say the words of Jesus, come unto me, all ye that are laboring and are heavy laden, Jesus will give you rest. Barriers will be broken down. Misunderstandings will be canceled. Unity will be secured. And the church will truly be a caring community, reconciling people to God and to each other. I'll move on. It's getting late. One last mark of a great church we'll look at is that it must be a worshiping community. Worship, genuine, sincere, is the very mainspring of the life of the church. Like the psalmist said, I was glad when they said to me, Psalm 122, let us go up to the house of the Lord. I'm thankful for the leadership of this church family. Because 31 years ago when we came here, the leadership, as we discussed the, with the board, what their strengths were, what they envisioned their strengths to be, what they wanted their strengths to be, they said, we are not going to be all things to all people. We can't do that. We're not big enough yet. But we want to do a few things and do them well. And then as we grow and as things get better, then we'll strengthen some of the other areas. So they picked two focuses. An inspiring, high-quality worship service with fine music. And then creating the best possible Sabbath school environments for our children. I know some are thinking, well, why didn't you put the school in there? Well, we did. But we felt we had to strengthen the church. As Pastor Chad mentioned, uh, my first Sabbath here, before we'd actually moved here, was sitting on the platform, and I see back over here, about where the first row of seats is for the choir. And the conference president was sitting next to me. He was going to introduce me to the congregation. And he looked out over the congregation just before I stood up to preach. And he said, got a really good crowd here today. And I looked at him. I'd already counted. There were 180 people here. You know, the church had been going through some, some hard times between pastors. And some people were a little disillusioned. And they were going elsewhere. And I was thinking, this is a good crowd. Membership was over 600. I just was leaving a church in Minneapolis with a 350 membership, and we had 300 people attending. I thought, we got some work to do. But the board was right. Focus on worship. Because worship is so vital to the life of the church. Worship gives us a framework for life. 
all the scattered fragments of experience, all the bits and pieces of truth and feeling and perception, they all come together in a single whole in the worship of God. Everything from call to worship to benediction, uh, the offering appeal, all of that relates us to God, the decisions of God. Either we're looking back at what God has done in the past or we're interpreting scripture to see what God is going to do in the future. But everything, including the hymns, which are just paraphrases of scripture, all helps us focus on the decisions of God and gives us a definition for life, a framework for life. Worship also nurtures our need to be in relationship with God. It centers our focus, as I mentioned, on the decisions of God. Worship does not satisfy our need for God. It only whets our appetite. Our need for God is not taken care of by engaging in this hour of worship. It deepens. It overflows the hour. And it must permeate the week. Worship attunes us also for God's use. I was just reading the other day, and the author illustrated his point uh, by mentioning something Abraham Lincoln had said. And Lincoln, in his folksy common wisdom, he said, You know, if I've got a tree to cut down, and it's going to take me eight hours to cut down and cut up that tree. I spend the first six hours sharpening my axe. Worship sharpens us for the rest of the week. It attunes us for God's use. Calls us into action and says everyone is needed. Now, I want you to know that the Columbia Union Conference is not as far apart from the world church as you might read. We believe in mission to the cities. We have in our territory 10 of the largest cities in, in the U.S. And we're working in those cities. And we're evangelizing in those cities. I want you to know we believe in, in, in total health care. We have two health systems in our union here, Adventist Health Care and Kettering Health Care in Ohio. And I want you to know that we believe in total member involvement because it's not enough to come and sit here on Sabbath morning. We need to let what we do on Sabbath morning permeate the week and touch other lives through our blessing in worship. We need to be involved. And with this, I close. In the mid-1920s, there was a football game held it was between Harvard University, which is hard to believe that they were a major powerhouse 
of college football in those days. Today it would have been probably uh, the Alabama Crimson Tide or the Ohio State Buckeyes. Let me tell you, if Ohio is going to be playing in Columbus, don't take a Southwest flight from Baltimore to Columbus unless you're a Buckeye fan. I made that mistake one time and it was the most uncomfortable hour and 10 minutes of my life. But Little Center College was playing mighty Harvard. Little Center College from Kentucky. They only had 15 players on their entire team. You look at a college football game now, there are massive amounts of players along the sidelines. They probably have 15 reserves just for the position of linebacker today. Well, Harvard was like that, a huge team, powerhouse team. Radio networks carried the game live across the nation. It was a defensive struggle, hard-fought game. And when the whistle blew, Little Center College had pulled off the amazing upset of the decade. The microphone was thrust into the coach's face, you know, as they do. Bowman McGowan was asked, how in the world did you beat Harvard? And all he could say was, we only had 15 players, but 11 of them were in on every play. What an accent. Do we still have that accent? How I wish that every one of us could catch the spirit of that. If we could be in on every play as a redemptive agent, as a compassionate person, as one who had been so transformed by his worship or her worship, that we could reach out and win significant victories as well. So, Spencerville a great church? Yes. Does it need to continue growing stronger in those areas? Yes. I came was a part of this church family. We, we helped kind of get things stabilized and financially, you know. For those, uh, as I mentioned earlier, who thought we neglected the school, the truth of the matter is, for the first few years we were here, when the church budget was collected through the course of the month, the first bill that was paid was the subsidy to the school then everybody else divvied up the remainder. And there were some months there wasn't a lot left over to divvy. There were 117 kids in the school. My first year here came in February. The next school year there were 113. But the Lord then started to bless. Went from 117 up into the 130s and 160s. 
it kind of um, had stabilized about 235 when we left and Jerry came in and it continued to grow. I don't know how they squeezed nearly 300 kids into that old school. They were, you know, teachers must have been hanging from the rafters. I know they had, I know they had offices in the closets, you know, that's, but this school and its future, boy, what a wonderful work this family has done. You're to be commended. Others are to be um, chastised for not coming alongside and helping, but you took it on yourself because nobody else was willing to sacrifice. And God is going to continue to bless this church. Do you have an accent? I pray to God that you do. Even if you're from the Midwest. Even if you talk funny. Talk about Jesus. The closing hymn is going to be Rise Up, O Church of God, number 615. I think you wrote that down already, but if not... Just a reminder. <laughs>